So what is happening as we enter into the year 2020? I was encouraged to read that. For one thing, this past week, more than 65,000 Christian young people gathered in Atlanta Stadium to kick off a new decade with worship, prayer, and Bible teaching at the Passion 2020 Conference. They listened to speakers and Bible teachers like Louis Giglio, the founder of the conference, Tim Tebow, Ravi, Ravi Zacharias, and, and John Piper. Must have been an incredible time. But Passion 2020 is not just about the great Bible teaching and spirit-filled worship. Each year, these 18 to 25-year-olds who attend the conference raise money for different initiatives. Last year at Passion 2019, they raised over $400,000 to translate the Bible for deaf people all over the world. And at Passion 2020 this year, the student's goal was to raise money for Share Light, a campaign to see the Bible scriptures translated into the over 6,000 known languages during their generation, during this, their lifetime. And so with all the cultural negativity, the political division, the polarization that characterizes the turn of the new year, you've got to love the passion of these young people. Their optimism, 65,000 people showing their love for Christ, their love for God's word, and their passion to follow Jesus Christ for a lifetime. Now, when I think of passion, this is the way my mind works. I think of a movie called The Rookie with Dennis Quaid. Anybody remember that movie? The movie is based on the real-life story of a baseball player named Jim Morris, and he was a promising young pitcher who was forced to drop out of the minor leagues because of a shoulder injury. And his lifelong passion and hopes were dashed. And in the movie, 12 years later, after he had to drop out of baseball, Jim has become a married high school teacher in Texas and the coach of the school's baseball team. And his team was just absolutely horrible. In fact, all they had was a dirt field in Texas, and so they tried to plant grass. The deer would come and eat it every night right after it started coming up. And it was just one crummy place. Not all Texas is like that, but West Texas, it's like that. And, uh, and he promised them that if they win the district championship, he will try out for a major league organization. And the bet motivated the team enough to go from the worst to the first, making it to the state playoffs for the first time in the history of the school. And so forced to live up to his end of the bargain, Jim has almost laughed right off the tryout field until he gets on the mound and surprises the scouts and himself by clocking successful 98-mile-per-hour fastballs, which results in him being signed by the minor league team, the Tampa Ray Blue Devils. So Jim takes a leave of absence from his teaching and his coaching job. He leaves his, his family, his wife, and his son at home to pursue, based on a bet, what would have been his lifelong passion, baseball. But he doesn't know how this is going to go. And life is tough on the minor league circuit. You're away from home. You're sleeping in cheesy motels and eating bad food. He doesn't think he's doing well. He's tired and he's worn out beyond belief. He feels out of place as the old guy on the team. He misses his family and, and wants to give it up. So one night he calls his wife from a phone booth. Anybody remember those? And he tells her he is coming home. And she responds, 
Jimmy just makes sure that's what you really want to do. And so Jim goes to a sports bar, has a drink, and he's watching the TV set, and he'd kind of forgotten that just that week before, he had done an interview with the TV station about his life and his potential comeback and those kind of things. And as Jim watches, he thinks of the folks back home that are pulling for him. He thinks of the guys on his high school team that he doesn't want to let down. He thinks that baseball really is his true lifelong passion, and you pursue your passion when you have the opportunity to do that. That's just what you do. And so with passion renewed, Jim Morris comes into the locker room the next day with a smile on his face, a spring in his step, and he puts his hand on the shoulder of one of his fellow players, and he says to him, you know what we get to do today, Brooks? We get to play baseball. (laughs) We get to play baseball. So what is it in 2020 that you get to say with a smile on your in your smile on your face and a spring in your step you know what i get to do i get to how would you fill in that blank how would you fill in the blank i'm going to give you one way to fill it in today i'm going to help you fill in the blank you see each one of us as believers in jesus christ have been given a spiritual gift Each one of us has been given a divine enablement, an ability given by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ that is unlike anybody else's gift and unlike anybody else's passion. In the same way that Jim Morris was born to play baseball, and that was his lifelong passion, each one of us is born again to serve or to help or to show mercy or to teach or evangelize whatever your gift is. It's your God-given passion. It's what God gifted you and purposed you, and it's what brings joy, it brings fulfillment, it brings purpose, it brings meaning, and it brings significance into your life. So I want to jump ahead a little bit to where we're going in the next uh, just few weeks in our study of the spiritual gifts. So please turn over to Romans chapter 12, 12th chapter of Romans, verses 6 through 8. These touchstone verses that we keep going back to in our study of the spiritual gifts. In the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, Paul lists seven spiritual gifts. Now I'm going to stop you right here. I want everybody to see this. There's either a Bible in front of you or a Bible. Somebody has one next to you. Please stop. Take out a Bible and look this up. You guys got Bibles? Okay, you got Bibles? Good. Because I want everybody to see this. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. It's page 1392 in the Little Bible, page 1582 in the Larger Bibles. Because today and the next two Sundays, we're going to finish up looking at the spiritual gifts one at a time, and then we're going to return to our study in the book of Romans, and this is where we're coming back to. Because the seven gifts that Paul lists in Romans chapter 12 have been called the motivational gifts. The motivational gifts. And they are called that because each one of us here has one of these particular seven gifts as our primary spiritual gift. And your particular gift mix begins with one of these particular gifts. Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy... That's one of the motivational gifts according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, 
He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, if you have your Bible open, look at those particular gifts. One of these gifts listed here is your passion. It's what motivates you to serve Christ and his church. For example, your motivational gift might be the gift of mercy. And along with the gift of mercy and your gift mix, you might have the gift of helps and service. But the gift of mercy is your passion. It's what motivates you if you have this gift. It's what makes you say, or you can say, you know what I get to do today? I get to show mercy to somebody. Or I get to give to somebody. I know people with the gift of giving, that's just what they do. They look around the restaurant to see how they can give and help somebody. So in thinking about this over the next three weeks or so, as we finish up our spiritual gifts, be thinking about that. It's either prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, or showing mercy. Your primary spiritual gift is one of these, these seven, or it can be a combination of a couple or more of them. So this morning, we're going to be looking at three of the motivational gifts that are listed here. The gifts of prophecy, teaching, and exhortation. And all three of these gifts are what we would call speaking gifts. So look once again at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 10 that we read earlier. In the fourth chapter of Peter's first letter, Peter divides the spiritual gifts into two categories. There are what he calls serving gifts and speaking gifts. We've already covered the serving gifts. We've talked about the gift of service, the gift of helps and giving, craftsmanship and hospitality. These are the gifts that are most exercised quietly behind the scenes as we serve one another and serve others in Christ. So today we turn our attention to the speaking gifts. Verse 10 again, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. There's, those are the speaking gifts. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whoever employs his or her speaking gift is to do so, how? As one who is speaking the utterances of God. Sometimes that's translated the oracles of God. It's, it's literally the sayings of God. What God says, we speak those on his behalf. And really here we see the absolute importance of the word of God in all that we say and do, in everything that we do. We are to speak the utterances of God. Uh, and so this doesn't just apply to those who are gifted speakers, but it applies to all of us in that we should never give counsel to somebody else. We should never give advice to somebody else. We should never comfort somebody else apart from God's word being the basis in what we're saying and what we're doing and how we're doing it. When we speak, we shouldn't be voicing our own opinions. Boy, that'd kill Facebook in a flash, wouldn't it? <laughs> that'd just take it clear out. Yeah, but as Christians, as those who name the name of Christ and on his behalf speak for him, we shouldn't be voicing our own opinions. We shouldn't be voicing our own philosophies about life. We should be speaking the utterances of God. When we speak for Christ as a Christian and we speak about Christ, 
base our words in scriptures, not our own opinions. And what happens, you'll be forever relevant and helpful to other people if you do that. You'll never lack for a message. Whether it's in teaching a Sunday school class or coming alongside somebody to give encouragement, to help them, somebody who is struggling and hurting. If you base that in God's word and what God has said. And I've said before, if it weren't for God's word, I'd have absolutely nothing to say on a Sunday morning. And that's the way we really should approach the speaking gifts. Now, that doesn't mean you don't talk about other things that interest you. Of course we do. We want to be interesting to other people if we're going to lead them to Christ and those kind of things. And if the Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers both make it to the Super Bowl, the rematch I have been waiting for since 1967, the first Super Bowl, I'm going to have a lot to say and cheer about. (laughs) We can and should be passionate about other things that, that God puts in our lives. But when we speak for Christ... When we minister and serve in the name of Christ, we must base all that we say and all that we do in God's word. Now, of all the spiritual gifts the Apostle Paul mentions in Scripture, and Peter mentions as well, but especially Paul, he spends the most time dealing with the gifts of tongues and the gift of prophecy. In Corinth, tongues were being abused and prophecy was being neglected. Tongues were emphasized Well, prophecy was de-emphasized. And so to correct the problem, the apostle discusses at length the priority of the spiritual gifts, especially encouraging prophecy. So listen to what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Then he says, One who prophesies edifies or builds up the church. Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Prophecy is a sign for those who believe. Then he says, desire earnestly to prophesy. The idea, desire that in our church, in our lives, the gift of prophecy is forefront. And so we need to be very careful and, and, uh, about what is prophecy and what does it mean to prophesy and what does it mean today. Now, in Scripture, a prophet was one who understood God's revelation and correctly interpreted it to others. The prophet was somebody who understood what God was saying, what God had revealed, and correctly interpreted it to others. The word prophesy comes from two Greek words that means to shine before. To shine before. And according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, When the prophet speaks, he is like a lamp shining in a dark place. The prophet speaks forth. In fact, the word can be meant to declare or to speak forth. It literally means to stand before somebody and speak forth. And here it's the God's word. It's God's word. In the Old Testament, the prophet would receive a revelation from God directly to the mind of the prophet And through his voice, he would communicate and speak forth uh, the mind of God, the word of God. The prophet, having correctly understood God's word, would correctly interpret it and explain it to others. And then we have the phrase used over and over in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord God. Now, it might surprise most people to know and understand that only about 25% of what the Old Testament prophets said 
was predictive prophecy for some future time. In our day, we always think of prophecy as something, well, that's something future. That's the book of Revelation or, or, or something like that. That idea of prophecy being only and primarily for a future time and what's going to happen on a future date developed in the Middle Ages. It wasn't known in the Old and New Testament times as that. Most of what the prophet received from the Lord had to do with the circumstances of the day and what the people were doing. It was very typical to say, thus says the Lord God. You are sinning this way, you are doing that and that and the other thing, and if you keep doing that, I'm going to take you out. <laughs> These are going to be the consequences. Or if you do what I tell you to do, then there's going to be such and such blessing. That is the ministry of the prophet. Like Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19. It shall come about that if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you that you will surely perish. That really is the spirit of prophecy. Speaking to the people of the day, this is how you listen to God, obey God, do this, and this will be the blessing or the curse or whatever it is based on what you're, what you're doing. This is what God says. And in the same way as the Old Testament prophets, the apostles and those who were closely associated with the apostles directly received direct revelation or the words of God. So it was from the mind of God to the mind of the Apostle Paul, for example, and in some cases those who were closely associated with the Apostle, and then they would speak forth God's word. We're going to have an example of that before we participate in communion this morning because Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord now that which I deliver to you. That is his role as, as a prophet or an apostle in that regard. And remember that the apostles and the prophets, as we've looked at the spiritual gifts, they laid the foundation of the church that Jesus builds. And they did that by giving us what? The written word of God. The word of God. The word of Christ is the foundation of the church. And this word is complete. It is sufficient. It is without error. It is infallible. It cannot be added to or taken away from or, or changed. And the severest warning in the pages of Scripture is on the very last page of the book of Revelation. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this, what, prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So God is no longer giving direct revelation to the mind of a prophet or apostle that they may speak it forth or write it down. It is complete. But that still doesn't answer about the gift of prophecy today and why Paul said it is really the preeminent spiritual gift. Because the need is still great today for men and women to read, interpret, and proclaim the truth that God has revealed. God isn't predicting future events or adding to his word. And so we ask the question, what value does the gift have today? And, and in seeing that, we'll see what is the gift of prophecy today? So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. The 14th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And 
And in chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14 is where Paul has that, that lengthy discourse about the value of prophecy over tongues. And he says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That is the major responsibility of the gift of prophecy today. It is to study and interpret God's written word and proclaim that word in a way so that believers experience spiritual growth, spiritual discipline, and spiritual encouragement. That they are edified, they are built up, that they are exhorted, they are called to, as we will see with the gift of exhortation, to obey that word, and then consolation for, for comfort. I really like that word consolation or that comfort because uh, one preacher said, you know what my job is as a pastor, as a preacher? He says, my job in proclaiming God's word is to comfort the afflicted. And we go, amen. And then he said, it's also to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> Isn't that exactly? <laughs> amen. So the gift of prophecy can be defined this way. It's the ability to stand before and cause the word of God to shine for edification, exhortation, consolation, and instruction. And that's in your outline today. And the gift of prophecy today, today is best demonstrated in preaching. When a preacher faithfully studies the word of God and then stands before a congregation and preaches, he may be using the gift of prophecy. And the practical use of the gift of prophecy is best seen in the Word of God, preaching the Word of God expositionally. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a little bit, in expounding God's Word. And we have a good example of that, clear back in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, at verse 1. I think it's been three years or so since we've been in the book of Nehemiah and had some, some great uh, studies there. In the 8th chapter of Nehemiah, we find the account of the great revival of God's people at the water gate. They had rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem under Nehemiah's leadership, and now the people need to be rebuilt, as it were, spiritually. They'll be under Ezra's leadership. Now is the time to rebuild the people spiritual, spiritually, and the tool for that rebuilding is the Word of God. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which is in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. This was a long lesson here in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. So it's saying there, there, were, there weren't children there who would not understand, but it's just those people who are old enough that could understand God's word. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah, and on his right hand, Pedadiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadadan, <laughs> now these get tough even on a Sunday morning, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. 
Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the great God, Lord the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masai, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, explaining the law to the people while the people remained in their place. What we seem to have here is all these men, these men who are teaching and interpreting uh, God's law, they, they went among the people and probably met in small groups among the people, reading the word of God and explaining it to them. This is what it means. And, and, and it says in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating, better, better word there is explaining, to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Verse 8 is expository preaching and teaching in a nutshell. It's the reading of the Word of God. It's interpreting the Word of God to give its meaning, speaking it forth in a way that God's people can understand it. It's the same thing to which Paul called Pastor Timothy. In verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 13, or, or, or chapter 4, Paul says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. Same thing they were doing at the water gate. And Paul told Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so while on one hand Ezra's proclamation is not a Sunday sermon delivered to a local church, it does manifest the timeless and universal quality as regards to the nature of the exposition of God's word. And so first of all, Ezra models an expositor's commitment. And what was his commitment? Was to studying God's word, practicing godliness, and teaching it. Which leads him to perform an expositor's task. And what is that task? It is reading distinctly and explaining the scriptures. So that his congregation may hear and learn and fear the Lord our God and be careful to observe the word of God. That's prophecy as it applies to us in the New Testament. And this is the way that John Stott explains expository preaching in his book, Between Two Worlds. He writes, It is my contention that all true Christian preaching is expository preaching. Of course, if by expository sermon is meant a verse-by-verse explanation of a lengthy passage of Scripture, then indeed it is only one possible way of preaching, but this would be a misuse of the word. Properly speaking, exposition has a much broader meaning. It refers to the content of the sermon, which is biblical truth, rather than its style, a running commentary. He says, to expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. Bring out of the text, out of the biblical text, what is there, expose it to view. He says, the expositor pries open what appears to be closed makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. The opposite of exposition is imposition, which is to impose on the text what is not there. 
But the text in question could be a verse or a sentence or even a single word. It could equally be a paragraph or a chapter or a whole book. The size of the text is immaterial so long as it is biblical. What matters is what we do with it. Whether it's long or short, our responsibility as expositors is to open it up in such a way that it speaks its message clearly, plainly, accurately, and relevantly. And with that, that brings us to the spiritual gift of teaching. Another one of the speaking gifts. Now, if we were to draw on the shepherding metaphor, we can say, while evangelism brings the sheep into the fold, teaching feeds them. Teaching nourishes them. It sustains them. The teaching of the truth of God's word is what Paul, or what Peter calls, feeding the flock of God which is among you. Now, the spiritual gift of teaching is the only spiritual gift that's mentioned or implied in all four lists of the spiritual gifts of the New Testament. In fact, the priority of teaching in the body of Christ follows after the foundational gifts of apostleship and prophet. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And of course, the Great Commission includes the command, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, what? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And the early church was characterized by teaching. The book of Acts records <clears throat> excuse me, that in the early church, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which refers to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Incidentally, which we have done and will do all four of those this morning. So this is the, the gift of teaching. The Christian with the gift of teaching possesses the special ability to interpret and present God's truth understandably. The gift of teaching possesses the special ability to interpret and present God's truth understandably. While the gift of evangelism brings new life, the gift of teaching sustains that life. Without teaching, there is no discipleship. Without teaching, you eliminate spiritual maturity. Now, not everybody who is called to teach in the body of Christ will have the spiritual gift of teaching. The qualification to be an elder is to be able to teach. In fact, it's the only qualification that differentiates the qualifications of an elder from, from, from a deacon, the ability to teach. Now, it doesn't say the elder has to have the gift of teaching. I think it's a lot like evangelism. Pastor Timothy didn't have the gift of evangelist. God told him to do the work of an evangelist. An elder is to be able to do the work of teaching, to be able to teach. We have many faithful and capable teachers who are effective but don't have the gift of teaching. Yet they help people grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every parent is called of God to be what? A teacher. A teacher. When you present the gospel to an unbeliever, what are you doing? You are teaching. When you disciple that new Christian, what are you doing? You will be teaching them. So what differentiates the gift of teaching from all the other teachers? Part and parcel of the gift of teaching is the acquiring of truth. To be able to gather truth be able to, to learn truth. Gifted teachers love to dig deep into the truth of God's word to find those, those nuggets. The gift of teaching entails the supernatural ability to both acquire and communicate truth. 
so effectively that people are caused to learn. I really like that. Cause to learn. It's not just imparting information. Gifted teachers cause people to learn. In other words, you have not yet taught if the, pe- the students have not yet learned. And one of the gifted teachers, most gifted teachers I've ever known was Dr. Robert Unmack in, at Central Seminary. I knew, I, I jumped in ahead because I came in between semesters and, uh, and I knew that he was dying of cancer. And so I thought, this is my only chance to listen to this guy, to learn from this great teacher of God's Word. So one of the classes I took was the Book of Romans, you know, which, you know, being a first-semester seminary student, jumping right into the Book of Romans, not knowing any Greek, Hebrew, one of those funny characters they're writing on the, the bulletin or on the blackboard and those kind of things. But Dr. Unmack would begin each, each class with saying, open your Bibles, and to wherever we're open our Bibles that particular day. And then he said, let's pray. We'd open our Bibles, and uh, we would pray, and then I would get my pen out, get my notebook out, get my Bible out, I'm ready to go, and those kind of things. And then he would just start expounding God's Word, teaching God's Word. And an hour later, I hadn't written down a thing. Hadn't written down a thing. But I'd taken in so much truth during that particular time. It was just amazing. And I like the way Rick Yon describes it. You might see yourself in this. Acquiring truth begins with analysis, that is, breaking down the whole. The gifted teacher takes the complete Bible in hand and chooses a certain portion for study. He investigates the passage by asking questions. Who is speaking? What does the writer mean? But the teacher doesn't stop with observation. He isn't satisfied with just knowing what the writer has said. He wants to see the truth applied to life. What is the passage saying to me? What does it say to those I am teaching? After he analyzes the passage, the gifted teacher puts it all back together. He selects the best of his discovery. He wants to be certain that his pupils are exposed to what they are capable of handling. Some of his nuggets will have to be placed on a back burner. His students aren't ready for those truths now. Once the teacher selects the important truths for his particular students, He begins by systematizing his findings. He decides what should be given first. He arranges his material logically. Now he's ready to communicate. And that was written by Rick Yon in his book, Spiritual Gifts. And so the next speaking gift on our spiritual gift list is exhortation. Exhortation. Paul writes to the believers in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, as we read, He who exhorts in his exhortation. While teaching systematizes and explains the truth of God's word, exhortation calls believers to obey and follow that truth. Exhortation calls believers to live as Christians are supposed to live, to live in obedience, consistent with God's revealed will. One writer says the exhorter lights the fuse, lights the fuse. Paul admonished Timothy, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, you have a spiritual gift. I'm lighting a fire under you. Use it. Now the word exhort comes from the Greek word parakaleo. You've heard that before. It's a compound of the Greek words para, which means alongside, and kaleo, which means to call, to call alongside. 
The noun means someone who is called alongside to give help or give aid, to exhort, to encourage. The word is used of the Holy Spirit, who is called the paraclete, the one called alongside, who is called alongside to help. And so turn over to John chapter uh, 14, the 16th verse, where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. The fourth chapter, chapter of John, we have that precious promise of our Lord in the upper room. Jesus has told his disciples that he is going away, and where he is going, they cannot come. And literally, the disciples freak out. What are they going to do without Jesus? They've been living with him, walking with him, working with him, serving with him, learning from him for three years. Jesus taught his disciples complete and total dependence upon him. Without Jesus, they can do what? Nothing. And now Jesus says, I'm going away, but, verse uh, 16 of John chapter 14, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper. There's our word. A paraclete. One who comes alongside. A helper, a counselor, a comforter, an exhorter, that he may be with you forever. And what is the particular ministry of the Holy Spirit here? Jump down to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So what is the, the spiritual gift of exhortation as it applies to us today? One with the gift of exhortation comes alongside somebody and exhorts that person to obey and follow the truth of God's word. So it can be defined this way. Exhortation calls believers to obey and follow the truth, to live as Christians are supposed to live, consistent with God's will. And the apostles used the gift of exhortation to challenge believers to take action all the time. Paul challenged Christians to place their bodies at God's disposal as a living and holy sacrifice. Paul said, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. He challenged the Corinthians to follow through on the financial pledge that they had made the previous year. And Paul uses the word appeal there or exhort. Uh, Jude challenged his readers to contend for the faith. He appealed to them. He urged them. And in each case, the word is exhort, parakaleo. I exhort you to do this. So let me close with an example of the gift of exhortation and its effect. Suppose a man has been living a self-centered life for many years. And he goes to church and he hears the word of God preached on a Sunday morning. And the exhorter challenges him to get out of the driver's seat of his life. He says, let Jesus take control. You are experiencing frustration and emptiness because you want your life to be one grand ego trip all about you. You've done things your way, but where have you gone? Where, what has it gotten for you? As I like to say, how's that working for you? <laughs> Jesus knows what is best. He can supply your needs. He can supply your desires. Tell him he can have you just as you are. Trust him to do whatever he promised when he said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, more abundantly.
And the man responds by quiet, praying quietly in his heart. <laughs> Lord, that guy's been talking to me. Have you ever been to a sermon you go, wow, <laughs> he's, look, he's just going right, right at me. And the man says, I've been selfish. Lord, I haven't given you a chance to run my life. I've messed up myself and I've messed up my family. Please take me as I am and do something good with me because I can't. And it's exciting, I've seen it over and over again, to experience and witness the change that takes place when a person responds to exhortation. His family is amazed and the exhorter is humbled to realize that God can use his gift to change a life. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for your word that is sharper than a two-edged sword. Sometimes it comforts us, sometimes it afflicts us. That's the double-edged part of it, Lord. I thank you for your word, Lord, that you haven't left us to our own opinions, our own devices, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, which is frail and flawed because we are human beings. But you have given us two great gifts in this regard. You have given us the word of God, your written word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth. And Father, you have given us your Holy Spirit who teaches us all things, who takes that word in our hearts and brings it to fruition, Lord, as your Holy Spirit works to call us to love you, to obey you, to serve you. Father, I thank you that any time your word is spoken, whether it's by the teacher, the preacher, the exhorter, and we'll look at some other ways next week, Father. I pray, thank you, Father. Your, your, work, your Holy Spirit's at work at both ends. In the giving and the transmitting of that as you're working through the life of the speaker, Father, and his study and his knowledge and his desire to, to get close to you, Father. And you're also working on the reception end. In the hearts of everybody who hears your word. Father, what a marvelous and wonderful thing as you do your work, both in the hearts of those who speak and in the hearts of those who hear, so that in all things, God, you might be glorified. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.